0: Firefighters, spot for flood condition, two three five Williams Road, Allard's house. Time now is zero zero two five.
1: This is one of the emergency dispatchers in Nova Scotia in the early hours of July twenty second, as rains and winds pummeled the province.
0: We haven't made it to that address. We got uh, multiple roads that are flooding really bad here. Um, We're currently at 178 Ellers House Road checking on someone that's uh, yard as a river. Uh, We'll let you know once we're clear here. Yeah, Roger. Everyone please use extreme caution. Um, These are flood conditions like we've never seen before.
1: The calls paint a real-time picture of how things went from bad to worse really quickly. Like this rescue of a person stuck in their flooded house.
0: From Broken Command. Uh, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. I need help here. I need, uh, I need some water, rescue personnel, ASAP. I got a rescuer down.
1: Luckily, this firefighter was able to be rescued after being swept up in the floodwaters. But not everyone was saved, including one adult, a teenager, and two children.
0: Brooklyn, Command, copy this. Go ahead. For the people trapped in the vehicle on Highway 14, I guess they are now separated. There's a child missing.
1: Today, Lindsay Jones is on the show. She's the Globe's reporter based in Nova Scotia. She's been covering the floods and the province's response to them, including why people weren't alerted to the dangers until hours after the disaster began. I'm Cheryl Sutherland, and this is The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Lindsay, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So, Lindsay, we just heard some dramatic tape of the radio calls between emergency dispatchers and firefighters in the area of West Hance. And one of the calls they got was for children who got separated from their family in the flooding. I'm just wondering, what do we know about what happened there?
0: Well, we know there were two families that escaped from their home around 2.30 a.m. In the vehicles were the Harnish family and Chris Sisko and his son Colton. The harnish family there was a mom and a dad a six-year-old girl named natalie and her younger special needs brother who was two named christian and and what happened do we know what happened to these families so as soon as they turned out the end of their driveway onto highway 14 in brooklyn flood water swept their vehicle away mm-hmm. the families tried to save all of the children um Chris Cisco became separated from his son Colton, and Nick Harnish and his wife. They were able to save Christian, uh but their daughter Natalie disappeared.
1: Oh my goodness, can't imagine do we know anything about these kids like how what were they like? Um, from
0: what I heard about um, Natalie, she loved the color purple. Mm. She and Colton were buddies. They were, they were really good friends and uh, looking forward to spending that time together that weekend. I heard that she loved to help take care of her little brother, Christian, mm. who had a feeding tube. And um, she was just a, a really sweet, super outgoing, cartwheeling little girl.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and what about Colton?
0: Well, Colton loved his pigs. Um, <laughs> his family had a farm and he enjoyed helping his father with the tractors in the yard. He loved to snuggle with his mom and eat popcorn and wear Spider-Man pajamas mm. and play with his collection of Spider-Man toys. Colton's family is devastated by, by his loss. Yeah.
1: I mean, devastating losses for these families, and and I know that these weren't the only people who died that day.
0: Yeah, so there was another vehicle traveling on Highway 14 around the same time, and that vehicle was swept away. And there Mm -hmm. were three adults in in that SUV, along with 14-year-old Terry Lynn Ketty. She was a cancer survivor who'd recently been given a clean bill Mm -hmm. of health after undergoing chemotherapy. She really wanted to start babysitting, and she was just, from everything I heard about her, she was this bright light who was so positive. So she passed away, and also Nick Holland, who was a musician in a heavy metal band, he passed away as well. And Colton and Natalie, were they ever found? Yes, every person that went missing was found. One child was found 25 kilometers away from where search crews were looking in Brooklyn in West mm-hmm. Hans, And the other child was found in the, you know, the main search area where uh, the vehicles submerged.
1: Mm. I mean, when we talk about 25 kilometers, that, that's, you know, it just really shows the power and the force of the water there.
0: Yes, and Terry Lynn Ketty was also found in Advocate Harbor which was about 100 kilometers wow. away. There's this very strong push and pull of the tides every day, and so that is how police believe the children were taken that that large of a distance.
1: You know, Nova Scotia got a lot of rain that day. It was about three months worth of rain in just a day. But can you help me understand, why was the
0: flooding so intense in this particular area of the province? So this area appears to be on a floodplain, and it also got you know the maximum amount of rainfall of, of of anywhere. Another thing about this region is it's influenced by the Bay of Fundy, which has the highest tides in the world twice a day the tides roll in um they flood and mm. a lot of the rivers and tributaries in the area it's multiple stories of water come in and out daily what about the wildfires did that did that because
1: there were wildfires earlier um so in june so did that have anything to do with why this this particular area saw the flooding it did
0: so from the climate experts that I talked to m- my understanding is that you know, this this extreme weather is is an effect of climate change. Mm. To experience such a long period of of dry hot weather um mm. you know we were bound to get the other side of that which was heavy rain that mm. that finally fell and in that one particular part of the province in West Hans it was catastrophic.
1: Oh yeah. And and so this rain and the flooding, it it happened kind of in the dark of the early hours of July 22nd. What do we know about what emergency officials were doing at that time?
0: Firefighters were overwhelmed with the response. Uh, I I could hear them on the dispatch saying, we cannot come help people unless there is a risk of loss of life. If people are safe in their homes, please instruct them to uh, shelter in place at this time. And I don't want any personnel uh, put at risk for rescuing pets at this time. We're only going to deal with uh, human lives at this time, please. It seemed like you know they did not want any other vehicles on the road because they were already overwhelmed with trying to save and rescue a number of other people that were out there. We could hear emergency responders seeing cars that were trapped in floodwaters. One man was uh, in a tree. Got another 911 call for 6119 Highway 1 in Ellers House. Your caller's vehicle was submerged in water. He's now hanging in a tree. 6119 Highway 1. He said he can see trucks. Throughout the rest of the province, there was major infrastructure damage across dozens of roads and bridges, which still are not repaired.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: This was unlike anything people had ever seen in Nova Scotia.
1: So, Lindsay, I'm just wondering, like, at any point were these first responders trying to communicate this level of danger to the public?
0: Yeah, so starting at 1.12 a.m., an official with the Brooklyn Volunteer Fire Department asked 911 dispatch for an emergency alert. Uh, We need an emergency alert put out for West Hands area for people to shelter in place at this time. We need people to stay off the roads. Uh, We have uh, major flooding and uh, damage to infrastructure. So if you are able to have RCP contact us If they're able to just put that emergency alert out, um, that would be very much appreciated. That message took an hour and 56 minutes, I believe, nearly two hours to finally get out.
1: Wow, that's a long time. Um, So when the fire department did ask for an alert, um, what were they told?
0: A call for an emergency alert can only come from the municipality. So there was a bit of a miscommunication there about who held that responsibility. The 911 dispatcher calls the RCMP. The RCMP advises, you know, we don't have the authority to call the emergency alert for a flood, but we'll pass it on to the province, which does. Mm-hmm. So they pass it on to the province. Then the province contacts the municipality and, you know, that person isn't available. That person is off grid. All of this took time to find the right person to authorize mm-hmm. the emergency alert in the municipality to craft the emergency emergency alert. The alert finally went out at 3.06 a.m. And so in listening to the dispatch, you could hear the the repetitive pleading calls. Yeah, Roger. Valley, I need that emergency uh, message put out by RCMP now. I need that out now. We need people to stay in their homes.
1: Yep, Bobby, we're trying, but
0: it's a bit of a process on how it gets issued. So we are trying... It's really harrowing to hear that now in light of the fact that within that span of time Mm -hmm. between one twelve and 3.06, when the alert went out, that people were swept off the road and died. We'll be right back.
1: OK, so Lindsay, just to recap how this crisis unfolded in this region of the province, we have this volunteer firefighter team pleading for an alert to get people to shelter at home. It takes about two hours for this to happen. And this is in part because of confusion around how these alerts are issued. This makes me think about the Porto Peak Massacre in 2020, where 22 people were killed. And and in that time, the public also didn't get alerts about the active shooter immediately. I'm just wondering, didn't the province receive recommendations on how to fix things after that?
0: So after that failure to send out an emergency alert during the mass shooting, yeah. the province authorized the police to send out emergency alerts themselves. Right. And that was that was just for criminal matters.
1: Like, so in the case of a natural disaster like the flooding, why did it take two hours to send an alert?
0: The province maintains they did they acted as quick as they could once they went through their protocol, which involved, you know, having the municipal official make the request. Also, you know, one thing that the municipality is looking into as well is did the lack of cell phone service in the area impact the ability to communicate amongst people who needed to authorize that alert? I mean, that's a, That's another thing. We don't know the answer to that yet. So. It does show the need for more training. People Mm -hmm. need to understand how to, you know, what the chain of command is in an emergency situation and what to do. And, you know, one thing that I raised with the premier of Nova Scotia was around the decentralization of, of emergency alerts. And so this would allow more people on the ground to issue a public alert so it doesn't have to go through all of these circuitous chain of command that led to these delays. So coming back to the cell phone service
1: issue, which we kind of talked about earlier, how have officials responded to criticisms that reception is risking lives there?
0: We heard from the mayor of West Hance that there were multiple people that didn't receive the emergency alert due to poor cellular service or no cellular service. You know, this is not the middle of nowhere. This is five minutes off a 100 series highway in Nova Scotia uh, Mm -hmm. near, you know, a major town where many people commute into the city of Halifax and they don't have reliable service in that town. So this is something that Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland uh, addressed after the floods. She said that it needs to change. She, ne- she wants to see urgent action. The CRTC, the telecommunications regulator in Canada and um, telecommunications companies themselves all have a responsibility to fix this problem. And can you just um, explain like, the CRTC, how are they involved? Like they are, are they a part of basically making these changes? So they're responsible for the public alert system for okay. Alert Ready, which is like the national public alerting system. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who are responsible for enforcing regulations that require cell providers and radio and TV broadcasters, which can also send out public alerts to distribute the emergency alerts.
1: And Lindsay, I know you've also talked to Colton Cisco's family. Do they feel as if it would have made a difference if they had gotten an alert before they fled?
0: Colton's father has said that he doesn't believe it would have made a difference, but Mm. he'll never know. Um, It's a what-if type of situation. And in speaking with his grandfather, Calvin Leggett, uh, he, he said that he doesn't believe it would have made a difference, but he's advocating for changes to remove this bottleneck in sending out emergency alerts so that no other family has to go through what theirs did. I think it's very hard to say for certain you know, what would have happened? I mean, this family needed to flee their home. Water was apparently coming up five feet right outside the door. No, no one had warned them to, to evacuate or to stay in place. They didn't know what to do. It's hard to say. There were so many hazards in that situation. But had the emergency alert come sooner and people had this information in their hands, which they needed in an emergency to protect them to make the right decisions for their safety... They didn't get that.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. I want to turn to Nova Scotia's flood response in general, broadly speaking. Like, how prepared was the province to deal with this kind of disaster?
0: So, there was a report card that came out in 2020 mm-hmm. um, from the Intact Center on Climate Adaption at the University of Waterloo. I spoke with the author of that report, and he told me Nova Scotia had well documented evidence regarding its substantial lack of preparedness for flood risk, and the province did not act sufficiently to correct these deficiencies prior to the floods. So the one area that we did do okay in was emergency preparedness. The author of the report said to me that this meant the burden landed on emergency first responders, which I think we we hear firsthand in those dispatches from 911.
1: So what is the provincial government say about this?
0: The provincial government provided me with a joint statement from a couple of different departments um, saying that it has a municipal floodline mapping program and it's creating updated hazard maps for all watersheds to help inform municipalities of flood risks. So they say this will give municipalities more information so that they can help improve their preparedness and response plans for potential flood events. So, you know, the, the responsibility is downloaded onto these municipalities. And this is potentially problematic in that, you know, one, one of the issues that comes up is, you know, people have to be told that their house is on a floodplain or their, and their property is devalued. And, you know, this might not seem like a big deal, but because the mayor and the councillors at the municipal level Do not want to deal oftentimes with unhappy constituents that, Mm -hmm. you know, this close sort of political nature of it makes it more difficult to to make those decisions and that other provinces in Atlantic Canada, they're one step politically removed. Mm -hmm. And New Brunswick, for instance, does have a provincial portal where you can go on there and and look and see anywhere in the province that is on a floodplain and its history of flooding.
1: Well, it seems like there's still a lot of steps in the process. You know, it seems to be it needs to be streamlined there. And, you know, it makes me think that hurricane season is coming up quickly for the province. You know, the peak is usually in September. I'm just wondering, is there anything that Nova Scotia can do immediately, like right now, to be prepared for that?
0: The province suggested to me that individuals can prepare by sealing their basement doors and windows, installing a sump pump is is really important, mm-hmm. um, checking insurance coverage and also avoiding building new homes on floodplains, which, you know, you think would be fairly instinctual for most people. But if you don't have those maps available to you and you, they're not, say. then then how do you know? Yeah. So those are things individuals can do. Um, The province says it will be hiring a flood coordinator and a stormwater engineer to implement flood prevention and climate change adaptation measures. So there is movement underway to improve the response to flood risk here Mm -hmm. in Nova Scotia.
1: Lindsay, just to end, it's been over two weeks since these floods, roads and bridges were destroyed. Over 500 people were displaced. I just wonder, how are things for people in the province today?
0: Well, people are still picking up the pieces in the most impacted parts of the province. There are people who will never be going back to their homes. All of the roads are still not open yet. Some of the bridges are destroyed and still not reopened, but there's detours. Things are flowing as usual here. But certainly no one is going to forget this and the, the loss of for people was Mm -hmm. devastating.
1: Lindsay, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thank you. That's it for today.
1: I'm Cheryl Sutherland. Nagi Nia is our summer producer. Our producers are Madeline White and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Adrian Chung is our senior producer. And Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.